Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. This week, we're going to be talking through a story that Luke records in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. It's a passage that is often referred to as the Jerusalem Council. Luke begins the story this way. He writes in verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So what we know from Paul's letter to the Galatians is that the certain people Luke references here are a specific people. They're Jewish Christians who have been sent from Jerusalem to Antioch by James, who is the brother of Jesus and arguably the leading figurehead of the church in Jerusalem. And this group of people have been sent from Jerusalem to Antioch, it seems, to teach all of the Gentile Christians in Antioch that in order for them to really be followers of Jesus, they need to become Jewish, which means getting circumcised and then following all of the Jewish laws and customs. Now, this causes a bit of a stir in the Antioch church. Luke writes in verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And let me tell you, this is one of those instances in a translation where so much gets lost. Sharp dispute is not exactly what happened. Our English language is lacking here. The Greek word that's translated as sharp, it means negate. And the Greek word translated as dispute is used in other places in the New Testament for uprising, insurrection, and riot. Paul and Barnabas didn't just get upset and disagree with the Jewish Christians James sent. They responded by attempting to negate their teaching in such a way that the best way Luke could think to describe what happened afterward was to refer to it as an insurrection or riot. It is a significant argument that they have. And this is where, even though we're only one and a half verses into Acts 15, I think we need to stop and ask some questions. Questions like, what was the reason these Jewish Christians even came to Antioch in the first place? And two, what about these people's message could have possibly caused Paul and Barnabas to react by violently attempting to negate the argument they were making? So let's start with our first question. What is the reason these Jewish Christians even came from Jerusalem to Antioch in the first place? Well, according to Josephus, who himself has a very interesting personal history, he himself was Jewish before he became Roman, was considered a traitor by the Jewish people, and he ended his life in Rome on a pension from the empire. 
Josephus writes that in Jerusalem in the mid-40s AD, which is when this story is taking place, it was to be plunged into a complex and confusing world. N.T. Wright describes how there were different groups and parties, different messianic and prophetic movements, different teachers and preachers, all claiming that God was acting here, or God was acting there, and God was doing this particular thing. And these groups and their leaders often violently cursed and condemned people who disagreed with them. They often got into very sharp disputes with people who taught differently or believed differently than they did. And yet, despite all of this difference amongst these Jewish groups in Jerusalem, the one thing that united all of them was their shared hatred of Rome, who the Jewish people considered to be a monstrous and pagan abomination. Now, just because some of these, Jerus these Jewish people in Jerusalem started following Jesus, it didn't mean that they stopped being Jewish. That even after they began to follow Jesus and become part of the church, they still maintained their Jewish identity. Which means it was easy for the Jewish Christians following Jesus who were still living in Jerusalem to see their movement as a Jesus-centric version of what might have been known as a Jewish loyalist agenda that was aimed primarily at overthrowing Rome, or at the very least, pushing their Roman oppressors out of their land. And all of these Jewish factions hoped that God would accomplish this for them when he brought his kingdom to earth. Now, as you might guess, any loyalist agenda requires absolute loyalty. Otherwise, you're considered to be part of the problem. In this particular instance, the Jewish loyalist agenda required absolute loyalty to the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law makes it clear Jewish people can't be loyal Jews and be in relationship with Gentiles. Just cannot do it. And loyal Jews definitely can't sit at a table and share a meal with Gentiles. The only way a righteous Jewish person could build a relationship with a Gentile or have a meal with a Gentile is if the Gentile person first agreed to convert to Judaism and then began following all of the Jewish religious customs. So when Luke writes that this group of people arrived in Antioch from Jerusalem and began teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved, what they're really doing is teaching every Jewish person in Antioch who had built personal relationships with Gentiles that they'd abandoned their true loyalty to Judaism, that they were part of the problem. Disloyalty was viewed as bad because it represented compromise with the pagan world. And compromise, this might sound familiar in our culture, 
Compromise of any sort creates a slippery slope that will lead other people astray. This is why the group of people came from Antioch to Jerusalem. And if God was going to bring his kingdom to earth and rescue the world, and in particular the Jewish world, from the power of darkness, read Rome, then a definitive break needed to be made between Jewish people and all of the pagans, read Gentiles. And it's worth mentioning this wasn't a fringe belief. Both Jewish people and Jewish Christians believed that God was going to bring his kingdom to earth and do it in their lifetimes. What mattered then in this context was absolute and total loyalty. Anything that appeared to be compromised with the pagan world needed to be eradicated. This means Jews and Jewish Christians needed to stop building relationships with pagans. That's how Israel and its leaders believed it would overthrow Rome and reclaim its rightful place in the world. And look, can we just take a moment here and acknowledge the ways this ancient reality overlays our current reality? So many people, many that we know, maybe even some of us, primarily identify through political terms. They're either conservative or progressive. And depending on which of those we identify with, we look at the people on the other side and say, they've given in to the woke agenda or Trumpism. And they seem to believe their cities and country have been overtaken by the evil forces of whomever they identify as their opponents. They believe their opponents have compromised with darkness and are responsible for the slippery slope that's been created in our country that has led to moral decay that they believe they can see everywhere. And the only reasonable response then is absolute loyalty to the cause whether that's a conservative cause or a progressive cause. Because absolute loyalty to the cause is how they reclaim their power, rightful place in American society, and also rescue America from darkness. This ancient dispute in Acts 15 is actually a modern dispute that speaks directly to our current social realities but more on that later. For now, let's go back and talk through our second question, which was, what about this group's message caused Paul and Barnabas to react so violently that they would want to negate their teaching? The mere suggestion that to become a true member of God's people, a person has to adhere to the totality of Old Testament law was to discount everything Paul and Barnabas had taught the Jewish Christians in Gen the Jewish Christians in Antioch and Galatia. They've spent years in Antioch. They've completed their first missionary journey through the region of Galatia. And what the people from Jerusalem are teaching is to completely discount everything Paul and Barnabas had taught. 
Paul's gospel is one where Jesus' life, death, and resurrection inaugurates an entirely new reality, a reality that doesn't negate the Old Testament law, but demonstrates the Old Testament's law's inability to make anyone holy or righteous. In many Christian circles to this day, Paul is best appreciated for teaching what's known as justification by faith alone. It's the idea that people are made right with God through faith alone and not through any external actions or any external loyalties. Paul writes as much in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 10, he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a really definitive statement. He's not saying, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and then also become Jewish and start following all of the Jewish religious rules and customs, then you will be saved. He says absolutely nothing about becoming Jewish or following any of these rules or regulations. He says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and you will be saved. He goes on to say, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all people and richly blesses all people who call on him. For everyone, Jews and Gentiles, who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In fact, in Romans, Paul makes an argument that stands directly against the message the people from Jerusalem were trying to teach in Antioch. According to Paul, not only does faith alone justify you, but faith alone also joins you into God's eternal family. Faith in Jesus, not loyalty to an identity or agenda, is what justifies a person. And this gospel message, the way that Paul and Barnabas see and understand it, this gospel message that they teach in Antioch and all throughout the region of Galatia and that Paul's going to teach on every one of the missionary journeys we're going to read about through the rest of the book of Acts, they understand it as simply a continuation of God's work in the Old Testament with Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 12, the author of Genesis records it this way. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That is an inclusive term that means this great nation will be comprised of Jewish people and Gentile people goes on, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In Genesis 12, God says that he will make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, a nation comprised of all peoples on earth. And according to Paul here in Acts, God is fulfilling that Old Testament covenant promise. Jews and Gentiles from every tribe, nation, and tongue are being welcomed into God's family by their shared faith in Jesus alone. 
And it's all of this that creates the context for why Paul and Barnabas react the way that they did. The rest of the passage describes Paul and Barnabas traveling to Jerusalem to meet with James, who had sent these people from Jerusalem, as well as Peter and other leaders in the Jerusalem church to hash out, in essence, who was right. Were Paul and Barnabas right? Or were these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem right? And the passage concludes with James, the brother of Jesus, and the leading representative of the Jerusalem church declaring, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. In short, the decision the Jerusalem council makes is that Paul and Barnabas are right. Gentiles don't need to become Jewish in order to be part of God's family, and Jewish Christians don't need to demand Gentiles become Jewish in order to build relationships with them or share meals with them. But you will notice four things that James says Gentiles need to avoid. Food polluted by idols, food that comes from strangled animals, food with blood in it, and sexual immorality. Have you ever played a game where you're like, which one thing isn't like all the other things? This feels like one of those moments. So real quick, it's clear for Paul, Barnabas, and the leaders of the Jerusalem church, what matters most so what matters most is finding a way for Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to be able to do life together as a family, despite the very real tensions they're all experiencing. The problem to solve then was not how do we get them all to believe the same exact things. The problem to solve was not how do we get them all to see the world the exact same way. The problem to solve was how do you create a community where people with varied religious, cultural, ethnic, and linguistic differences can become one family? The answer, it seems, was to make the, the level of entry for community involvement as simple as possible. The Gentile Christians needed to stop eating food sacrificed to idols and all non-kosher foods. And they couldn't have sexual relations with prostitutes or their family members. I know that's a weird thing to just say. I said it out loud. But that's the plainest interpretation of what sexual immorality likely meant in this context. And the Jewish Christians there, and they need to stop trying to require the Gentiles to become Jewish. And if we can do that, then we can all be in the same family. We can all figure out how to do life together. We can sit at a table and have a meal. The way the council solved this problem wasn't to get them all in a room 
and one by one work through all of their differing theological beliefs. It wasn't to work through their different political affiliations. It wasn't to make sense of their social realities and how they understand the world. It wasn't even to try to convince one another, no, no, you think that person's responsible for the moral decay of America, but it's not. They're not. Like, can we, we're just, okay, we're here. And it's important to say it wasn't accepting separate but different rules for different people in the same community. It wasn't looking at Gentile Christians and saying, we can create one set of rules for you, and for Jewish Christians, we can create one set of rules for you, and we'll just kind of coexist alongside of each other as peaceably as we possibly can inside of the same community, but still be separated from each other. That wasn't even a solution. What mattered most was establishing the simplest possible set of practices that enabled relationships to be built and strengthened by diverse groups of people around a common table. What mattered most was unity, not uniformity. No one was free. I think it's important to say no one was free to behave however they liked, though. The Jewish Christians had to turn from their belief that the law is what justified them. And the Gentile Christians had to turn from their former ways of living, which oftentimes included things like sexual immorality and worshiping in cultic temples. Paul believed that if we can preach the gospel and people will receive Jesus, then their faith in him will change people. That by spending time with Jesus and learning his teachings, people would become more like him and do what he did. So Paul and the Jerusalem council weren't just giving license to sin. They weren't saying that everyone was now free to just go about living however they wanted. Instead, they were saying everyone needs to submit to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus alone brings us into the family, and the barriers to entry are as simple as possible. But what about us? What does this have to do with our shared life as a church family today? I think we have to acknowledge that in our own community, but something that we've obviously seen, I think, across the Christian church in America today, is that Christians are capable of doing the exact same thing the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem wanted to do to the Gentile Christians in Antioch. We are capable of showing up into spaces and saying, if you want to be in relationship with me, you have to change who you are. You have to believe exactly like me. There are likely church communities that we're familiar with where we know there are just certain behaviors and beliefs we have to have if we're going to be able to actually participate in the life of that church. We can look at people in our church and we can look at people in our church who identify as politically conservative and say your hatred and longing for the past is harming people and damaging our witness to our non-believing neighbors. And based on that, 
we justify cutting those people out of our lives. Or we can look at the people who identify as politically progressive and say, your acceptance of sin and tolerance of sinful people is going to prevent God from blessing and protecting our country. And because of that, we can justify cutting an entire group of people out of our lives. We can look at each other and blame each other for all the hurt, brokenness, poverty, and hatred we see in our country and community. And because of this, we separate from one another. We pull away from one another. To go back to a sermon that Julia gave several weeks ago, we turn secondary things into primary things, and then we use those secondary things to justify the polarization and division that exists in our country, but also in our churches. Now, to make sure that I'm clear on what I'm not saying, I'm not saying we should be in deep relationship with people who are harmful to us or to our loved ones. We should not be in relationship with people who negate our value or worth based on the color of our skin. We should not be in relationship with people who might look at us if we have a child, sibling, or friend who identifies as LGBTQ and tells us that we just need to reject them because they're so sinful and lost. Our differences and disagreements don't go away when we accept Jesus. They don't go away when we join the church. Many of us likely have meaningful differences in the way we think about theology and religion or politics and the economy or cultural and social issues. What the Jerusalem Council teaches us is that none of these things should keep us from relationship with each other or from being willing to gather around a table for lunch or dinner. None of these things should keep us from talking with, listening to, or seeking to understand one another. The differences we hold are not allowed to become litmus tests for who's in and who's out or who's pure and righteous versus evil and lost. We're not allowed to demand uniformity as the basis for relationship or belonging. We're invited to be a people who say that our differences will not divide us. Jesus shows us a different way. The gospel teaches us a different way. I mean, even Jesus' 12 disciples show us a different way. Simon was a zealot who hated Rome, and Matthew was a tax collector who worked for Rome and was hated by his Jewish fellows, his fellow Jews. Somehow, those existed inside of Jesus' 12 closest followers. Think there was some tension there? I personally do. <laughs> We're invited to be a different kind of people who build a different kind of community, to build a tight-knit community where we live deep, committed relationship. We live in deep, committed relationship with one another, where we demonstrate 
a sacrificial love that seeks one another's well-being no matter how we identify politically. And we believe as we do this, we demonstrate God's goodness to our neighbors and neighborhoods. I believe culturally today we're encouraged to care for and support and move towards and meet the needs of people who agree with the world and see the world exactly the way that we do. And yet in the church, we're supposed to cross every one of those lines and move towards people. We're invited to see and recognize every person's ethnicity, language, and culture as reflective of God's image, beauty, and goodness. We are to hear and listen to one another's voices. We are to value and learn from each other's experiences and perspectives. And in Jesus, we're reminded that nothing qualifies nor disqualifies us from being loved and belonging to God's family. We're reminded that every person can belong and is worthy of being known and loved exactly as they are. Regardless of ethnicity, gender, sexuality, or ability, every person has a place because God wants all of his kids to come home. I think it's important to maybe clarify too. As I was sharing this sermon with a friend of mine who is not a Christian, and they asked me if I was advocating for centrism. No. I am not advocating for centrism. I'm advocating for us to passionately hold and develop convictions that understandably in our world might place some of us into one political party and some of us into another political party. I think we should live based on those convictions because hopefully those convictions are rooted in this belief that this conviction leads to flourishing for people. What I'm advocating for is that our disagreement on tax policy shouldn't mean that we can't be a part of the same church. Our disagreement on guns it's a very real thing. I don't think that should separate who's in and who's out of a church. I don't think the way that we understand this current war between Israel and Hamas, I don't think that should be a reason that we can't be in relationship with each other. We should have convictions. I don't believe those convictions become the basis for breaking from one another. So, let's do the work. Let's try to commit to one another. Let's build relationships with each other. Let's keep trying to be a church focused on primary things, not secondary things. And let's create space where diverse people can chase after Jesus and do life together. We're made one, not by seeking uniformity of belief or activity. We're made one by Jesus and our shared faith in him alone. Let's pray together.
Jesus, these words that Luke records in Acts, these stories, we believe they've been captured and told for our benefit so that we can learn who you are, so that we can learn who we are in light of you, and so that we can learn how to be your people here in this world right now. Father, take these words from this passage, our conversation this morning, and according to your spirit, work them into our hearts, work them into our minds, and work them out through our bodies. At the end of the day, what we want most is to be people who are becoming more like you and doing more of what you did in our neighborhoods. So teach us. We love you, Jesus.